Our Old Testament reading is found in the 55th chapter of Isaiah, beginning at verse 6. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and following. This is the word of God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And we turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 21 to 24. At that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Father, we ask for your help as we now consider these things before us. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illumine our minds, that we might learn from these means of grace to become and live and bear fruit as the people you call us to be in Christ Jesus. In his holy name we pray. Amen. 
there's a euphoria, this joy that approaches sheer giddiness that comes over an army that's just quickly, decisively accomplished its mission. Euphoria. Euphoria. 28 years have passed, but I can still hear our command sergeant major's voice. I can still see his beaming face as thermos of coffee in hand, as it always was. He poked his face into the chaplain tent in the pre-dawn darkness of February 28, 1991. And he said, cease fire, chaplain. The war's over. Just like that. Now, ground forces like our 1st Cavalry Division had been prepared for a very long ordeal and terrible losses. The Air Forces had been at it for a month and a half, but we on the ground had been only four days into the job when suddenly the enemy capitulated, gave up. And very soon we'd be going home. It was fantastic. An army of another kind, an army of gospel preachers announcing the coming of the kingdom of God and its king, in verse 17, returned to Jesus with joy, mission accomplished. And they were saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he responds to the 70 in the exultant words of verses 18 to 20. We've considered them before. He shares their joy and explains to them the inevitability of gospel victory wherever the gospel is preached, rather as the Holy Spirit had said through Isaiah in his 55th chapter. Like the rain and snow coming down to water the earth and make it fruitful before returning again to the sky, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The Lord Jesus shares the joy of their success, and he brings it that very hour in spontaneous praise and prayer to his Father in heaven. Because some things you just don't put off. You just can't put them off. Some things well up so quickly, so completely within you, that you just can't add them to a prayer list for later. Now is the time to praise him. He's made your heart glad. Praise him now. Thank him now. So the 70 are rejoicing, and so is Jesus, who at the beginning of this chapter commissioned and sent them. And careful minds, thoughtful minds, inquiring minds want to know. Why all the rejoicing? Why is everyone suddenly so happy? And this, beloved, is our main point this morning. Jesus is happy, and the 70 are happy, and we today can be happy because this gospel of the kingdom of God goes forth and succeeds. It succeeds. The preaching of this good news accomplishes what Christ our King desires and succeeds in the matter for which he sent it. It accomplishes all the Father's purpose. 
So what's this gospel of the kingdom preached by the 70 in every town and village between Jesus and Jerusalem, to which he's now headed? What's this gospel been accomplishing? And what does it still accomplish today? Well, it accomplishes first and foremost the casting out of Satan and his works from the hearts of men. The casting out of Satan and his works from the hearts of men. This gospel does this by making clear that whatever powers Satan may exercise over the hearts of men are the illegitimate powers of a usurper. Satan has no kingdom of his own. He has no rightful claim on you. This gospel, rightly and comprehensively considered, begins not at Matthew 1, verse 1, but at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Satan has no title to these things, any of them. All things created rightfully belong to him who first created them, which includes the souls of men, which includes you. The earth belongeth to the Lord and all that it contains, the world that is inhabited and all that there remains. The good news of God's kingdom tells us the plain truth about these things. It sounds the alarm in the sinner's soul. It tells us that things around us and things within us are not as they should be. It tells us that an intruder has imposed himself on God's once beautiful world, imposed himself on you, and has to be dislodged. He has to be cast out. And the gospel accomplishes this by telling us the sober truth about God and man and the universe. Just as God the Son before the foundation of the world had watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning, so he is now in these last days, by the preaching of the gospel, watching him fall from his seat of power in the minds and hearts of men. The gospel of God's kingdom, incarnate in Christ, changes minds, changes thinking, changes worldviews. And so lives are changed as well, and it's a beautiful thing to see when you see it. By the preaching of the gospel, Satan's not only exposed as a fraud, he's thrown out. With all his minions, he's thrown out. That's the power of the gospel. Small wonder there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who smells a rat detects the lie of Satan the usurper, who sees the danger, changes his mind, and turns to Christ his rightful king. The good news accomplishes the casting out of Satan from the minds and hearts of men. It sets us straight on things. This is fundamental. But what else does it accomplish? The gospel also accomplishes the consolation 
of those redeemed hearts as in Christ we read our new title as the sons and daughters of God. The consolation of those redeemed hearts as in Christ we read our new title as the sons and daughters of God. Are you glad that the spirits are subject to you? Do you rejoice that the demons tremble at the name and righteousness of Jesus Christ, now clothing you as a breastplate against the fiery darts of the devil? It's true, faith in Christ renders you more than conquerors through him who loved us. Faith in Christ renders you invincible, as we saw last time we were together. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The battles in which we're presently engaged as Christians are passing. Very soon they'll all be over and we'll enter into rest. The award citations read when soldiers are decorated for valor on the battlefield typically describe the events of a day or two or if decorated for meritorious service, they may describe the soldier's achievements over a period measured in weeks or months. But when the battle's over, when the service is passed, and the soldier hangs up his uniform and goes home, he does well to move forward with his life. Whatever is yesterday's held, whether they were good days or bad days. Whatever they held, he does well to let them go and remember who he is today, who he really is underneath it all. Your identity in Christ isn't a matter of the transitory moment. It's not subject to change just because your circumstances do. The names of the elect of God are recorded in heaven. So if by the grace of God you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow. You'll be a Christian five and ten and a hundred and a thousand years from now. You'll be a Christian through thick and thin, in war and peace, in sickness and health, in life and death, because your name's recorded in heaven. You are safe in the Father's electing love and the Son's shepherdly care. You're secure. Your identity in Christ isn't subject to hacking or theft. God, your Father, keeps you. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, says the Apostle John, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Our adoption papers are registered in heaven. Our names are there. Through the preaching of this gospel of the kingdom of God, our Father accomplishes the casting out of Satan, and consequently the consolation of the redeemed, whose names are recorded and so kept safe in heaven. 
In the preaching of the gospel, he also, thirdly, connects the preached word with the prepared ear. He connects the preached word with the prepared ear. All that God the Father has given to the Son in the process of time come to him. All of them do, and only they. He awakens each one by his Holy Spirit, prepares them inwardly to hear with simple faith, and with such surprising results. It's astonishing. I myself recently explained the gospel to a medical doctor who lay in a hospital bed as she wrestled with her own diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and teetered there on the knife edge between faith and fear. She wasn't yet sure about the gospel. She wasn't yet sure where exactly she should she stood with respect to the only Savior. Years ago, I also had many occasions to explain the gospel to hundreds of people with diagnoses of mental retardation and other developmental disabilities, and the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't represent a problem to them at all. God the Father tends to hide the gospel from the wise and intelligent and reveals it instead to babes. He reveals it to simple, straightforward, needy sinners, whatever their age. Sinners like Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed in whom was no guile. Or like Lydia, the merchant lady of Philippi, whose heart the Lord opened to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Or to sinners like me, a boy of nine who first heard the gospel from my older sister Carol and believed. Now why, you may ask, does God delight to do this? Why does he delight to hide the truth of the gospel from the wise and intelligent and reveal it instead to babes? Why are not the universities of the world bastions of the kingdom of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Why are not their faculties presenting to the youth of the world a clear, fully integrated biblical world and life view? Thank God there are exceptions. Consider the Apostle Paul himself, an educated man yanked out of his hardened unbelief. But why does this seem to be the general pattern of things? That highly educated man who is now rooted deeply in Christ explains why in his first letter to the Corinthians. What Paul says there is, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. 
that no man should boast before God. Amazing. There's a purpose to this pattern. When we begin to think through these mysteries of God's choice, we're constrained to confess along with Paul as he wrote, along with Paul as he wrote in another letter, one to the Romans, when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Contemplation leads us into the joyful adoration and worship of the living and true God, our Sovereign. Because this gospel of his Son connects the preached word with the prepared and believing ear. All other ears are stopped to it. All other eyes blinded. All other hearts hardened. And we can neither boast ourselves against such a sovereign God who elects whomever he will, nor expect to win any arguments against him. Because even the foolishness of the Almighty and towering wisdom surpasses all the combined Oxfords, Harvards, and Stanfords of lost humanity. Theirs is the academic reputation, whatever that may be worth. But he reigns. He in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and in him, in Christ, the children and heirs of the kingdom are kept safe. Now these are extraordinary claims Jesus makes for the gospel message. Extraordinary. By what authority does he press them on us? It's a very good question, and he answers it next. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, he says. And no one knows who the Son is, except the Father. And who the Father is, except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's the Father's redemptive purpose that's accomplished by the preaching of the gospel. But the divine method being preached, the method by which the Father sovereignly redeems sinners to establish a new humanity, the method is to grant authority to the Son to accomplish it. And this too is a matter hidden from the worldly wise and revealed to babes. Christ's authority to redeem this lost world as God the Son is absolute. It's absolute, so there's no way the Father's project of redeeming the lost can ever miscarry. There's no way it can fail. Which is another reason this gospel is such good news. Ultimately, there are no contingencies 
the human mind has to wrestle with. There are no but what ifs. Because the project's all in the capable hands of Christ Jesus, who says all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. Not I do my part and you do yours. His authority to see your redemption through to its glorious end is absolute. And it's exclusive as well. It's absolute and it's exclusive. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. There aren't many different ways to the Father. Never have been. There's one way. One way only. And that way takes you through faith in God His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's always been that way. It's been that way from the very dawn of history. He's always been the way, the truth, and the life. No one's ever come to the Father except through Him. Which leads us to a very good and interesting question, doesn't it? What about Abraham? What about all the other saints of the Old Testament? Well, they lived by faith, not by sight, didn't they? Isn't that the point of Hebrews 11? They lived by faith in one coming as the seed of the woman. One who is to come in the fullness of time to crush the serpent's head, to destroy the works of the devil. They lived by faith in promises divinely made and then progressively clarified and better defined in the succeeding covenants as redemption history unfolded. Christ was that one way back to the tree of life at the beginning. He was that one way guarded by the cherubim with the flaming sword when every other way was closed off. Satan would have gladly closed off this way as well if he could have, and how he tried. The story of the Old Testament and into the New Testament is the story of Satan's efforts to close off that one way. But that one way back to life, to paradise, was guarded. It was kept open until the fullness of the time at last had come. I need to bring this to a close. Why all the rejoicing at the preaching of the gospel? First, because this gospel accomplishes the Father's redemptive purposes, and then because the final accomplishment of those purposes is guaranteed by the sovereign authority granted to the Son. What remains is merely to consider the advantages of those who know what you now know. Millions of people before you yearn to see and to know the things freely available to you, brothers and sisters, in this book. The things ultimately summed up in Christ, 
the things we read and preach and hear in the gospel. This good news changes hearts and minds and lives by changing history. Christ has changed history. And he's changing our view of history and our place in it. Suddenly, in the light of this book, we perceive our own story not as beginning with an unwitnessed random big bang, nor as finally winding down after billions and billions of meaningless years to a state of inertia. That's a fantasy world many of the wise and intelligent propose for us, but Christians don't live in a fantasy world. We live in a world shaped by the eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Those eyes were blessed. One set of those eyes that went by the name of Simon Peter says of this good news, this gospel, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the even more prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This gospel, news of things actually seen and heard by multiple capable witnesses, this gospel liberates us from the grip of the fantasy world in which so many lost souls are still imprisoned. It tells us of the coming of God's kingdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his Son. It gives us ample reason to believe these things are absolutely true. So how can we be discouraged? The kingdom of God has come. It's gained the decisive victory. Let us then enter in and exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation.